The following audio is from Restoration Southside Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, where our mission is to restore people and places through outreach, authenticity, and sacrifice. For more information, visit restorationsouthside.org. A respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of a rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Hoses, saw where he was laid. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him, but go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. If you are in kindergarten through fifth grade and you would like to go to children's church, please join our volunteers in the back by the kids zone sign. If this is your child's first time, please go with them so that we can get them checked in. Well, we've certainly taken our time working through Mark. It's not lost on me that today is supposed to be the first day of Advent. But as a special gift to you this year, we're going to, on Christmas morning, there's church, which I know you're excited about. Since we had that extra Sunday, it gave us the opportunity to celebrate the last Sunday of Advent on Christmas, and it gave us the opportunity to finish our study of Mark, and so that's why you don't see the candles up here this week. I promise you Christmas is coming, just not this morning. But we have been working through our way way through Mark for a long time. We've seen this glorious story where Jesus demonstrates who he is as a person, demonstrates his power. He preaches the good news to the least, the little, the lost, the lonely. He gathers up this band of misfits around him and goes and does good things for the world and for the kingdom, preaching that the kingdom is at hand. And then they try to trap him, and then they arrest him, and then they torture him, and then they kill him. And then gloriously, 
as we read this morning, he's risen from the dead. And it ends with, Mark 16, 1 through 8, ends with, and they left terrified and said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. If you have your Bibles, you may notice that in Mark 16, 1 through 8, just after that, there's actually a 9 through 20. We don't preach that section. It's called a spurious text, which means it's not old enough to be legitimate. It was added later in the copies, but it wasn't in the older copies. It sort of helps wrap up Mark a little bit more neatly, but it's not supposed to be in there. That means John Mark and Peter, who was recounting the story to John Mark, wanted it to end with, they left terrified and said nothing to anyone. When you have a story that's this good, this rich, this compelling, why would John Mark, why would Peter want it to end with this man who has done everything he said he would do, who has conquered sin, death, and the devil, and now stands victorious, and none of his followers are there, and his women who hear the good news run away and say nothing to no one, for they were afraid. Why in such a compelling story in such a sad way? That's what we're going to talk about this morning. One of my favorite preachers of grace has said this, there are two organizations in the world where being bad is a requirement for membership. There are two organizations in the world where being bad is a requirement for membership, the mafia and the church. The mafia and the church. He did not come for the healthy. The healthy have no need of a doctor. He came for the sick. Do you believe that for yourself? You're not here because you're pretty good and hoping to get better. You're not here because of your enormous potential to be good. The reason that this story and this person, this man is compelling to you is because you're bad. It's not the healthy that need a doctor, it's the sick. Do you believe that? A story where Jesus conquers death, Satan, and sin, and nobody's left to celebrate it. Why would he end the story this way? Let's pray and God, ask God to bless our study of his word this morning. Lord, would you have mercy on me, a sinner? I ask by your grace, by your kindness, that would, you would move into, by your spirit in this room. Would you rush into this room for those who are dragged here by their spouse or by their parents who have never, never experienced the life-giving gospel of a God who chases failures. Would you explode into their hearts this morning? And for the rest of us too. Those of us who think we're too bad and that we're, we're on your angry, your naughty list, 
and you've saved us, but you're not happy with us. Or perhaps those of us who think you've saved us because there's something good about us. God, would you explode with your spirit into their hearts, our hearts as well. You have to move. You have to move this morning. And I beg that you would. You love to minister grace. You love to lift the chins of the downtrodden and the lost and the hopeless. You love to take the person who is the furthest away and make them your own. Do your thing this morning, God. We expect that you would. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. When we began planting this church three and a half years ago, we had this young couple that had just had their first child. We're so excited. Fortunately, three and a half years ago, you may remember that story that there was a bridge in Chattanooga that fell on the truck of somebody driving on the highway. You know how you drive on the highway and you see those big bridges, overpasses over you, and you think, wow, that's really amazing engineering. The best they can tell in hindsight is that there must have been a huge truck bearing an overload of weight and it ran into one of the bottom pillars of it. And as that must have happened, the bridge fell on one of our members' front end of the truck as he was driving by at 70 miles per hour. He was rushed to the hospital immediately. I was called to the waiting room to sit with his wife and brand new baby. That awkward moment where you know it's, it's too sad to be playful. It would seem inappropriate. And at the same time, you can't just sit there in silence, not trying to push the air along, not trying to give them any, any distraction at all. And it's this balance you walk as a pastor of trying to give hope and comfort and just the tiniest bit of levity into the room. And you don't know what you're doing and you don't know what it's supposed to sound like. And every single time the door opens to the waiting room, the entire family turns and looks to see if it's his doctor because we have no idea what kind of news is coming. That's where we find this story in Mark. I won't leave you hanging. That member of our church, Jesus provided for him through the care of the doctors and the surgeons, and he's alive and they've had another child since. But I'll never forget that waiting room. What kind of news is coming? That's what I want you to have in your heads and in your hearts this morning as we look at this test. Jesus has faithfully loved people. He's taught them that the kingdom of God is at hand. He he has walked alongside these 12 men. He's had these group of women gather and follow him all the way through. And then he's his lived a perfect life, he's died a gruesome death, he's risen from the dead, and there's no one there for him. There's no one there for They've all disappeared. And they just have no idea what kind of news is coming. You see, friends, we all struggle to believe the truths of the Bible, particularly the resurrection. Because of Jesus' character and power, we can trust in him. Because of Jesus' character and power, We can trust in him. I'm going to just hit these first points very quickly because I want you to see it. First of all, Joseph of Arimathea. We don't hear about him a lot in scripture. This is his one moment of faithfulness. Doing 
the work that no one wanted to do, which is dealing with the dead body. And I know he's really there to, for us to know that this is a recorded moment in history by a man who actually existed, who actually owned land, so that it would bolster the testimony, the credibility of Scripture. But for the application for you is doing the little next right thing is faithful, even if no one ever knows about it. Doing the little next right thing is faithful, even if no one ever knows about it, God sees. The other thing I want you to see, and then we'll move into the meat of our time together, is is that there's two confirmations of Jesus' death. Let no one try to convince you that maybe he was still alive and gasped back to life. Joseph of Arimathea must hear from the soldiers or from standing there, oh, that one's dead, and goes to tell Pilate. And Pilate is surprised because normally they, they suffocate him over two days. And so... Pilate sends for the centurion whose job was to execute people. And the centurion comes back and is like, yeah, he is dead. And again, that's just to tell you clearly that this was no resuscitation. This is resurrection power. Professional executors name him dead. Our faithfulness in the little things matter, so do the next right thing, even if no one will see it. And make no mistake, Jesus was dead before he was alive again. Now we move on to the second part. Jesus understands our doubt. Some of you wrestle with this simply because it's hard for you to believe. You wrestle with doubt. It's part of your personality. Maybe you're really, really bright. I found this a case of several different people who are geniuses or near geniuses who can parse things down in any field down to the smallest thought, the smallest argument. And for those people who are used to not having to engage faith because they can think it all the way through, I have found that often for super intelligent people, faith is hard for you. I've never had that problem. <laughs> but it is. And if that's hard for you, Jesus understands your doubt. Or maybe, maybe you've experienced something so difficult in your life, something so humiliating, filled with so much grief, so much tragedy, so much trauma, that you think, yes, maybe maybe it's all true. Maybe there's a God. Maybe he loves sinners, but it couldn't be for me. Not where I'm at. If he really loved me in this way, why wouldn't he love me in this way? And maybe you doubt him in that way. Or maybe, just maybe, you're so undone by your sin that you think God might love others, but there's no way he could love me. And so you doubt his love for you. You doubt his rescue of you. Friends, Jesus understands your doubt. Jesus understands your doubt. You envision him looking at you frustratedly saying, I've done all of this for you, and still you don't believe? And then we remember that his 11 friends have disappeared. And the women terrified, leave and tell no one. Jesus is used to being doubted. 
Mark 16, 1-3, When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that it may go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb and they asked each other, who will roll away the stone from the entrance of the tomb? John Mark is pointing out something we're supposed to smirk at. Remember, if anybody thought about Jesus, what would they think of? The 12 dudes who walked around with him for three years. Now they're going to see Jesus, and these faithful women go, who will roll away the stone? In other words, where are all those guys that used to follow him? They have followed him for three years. They said they would die for him, that they would never leave him. John Mark loves to highlight the failure of the disciples. He does it over and over again. Jesus has to tell Peter, get behind me, Satan. Jesus has to explain to them that all of them will fall away. Jesus has to tell Peter that you in particular are going to deny me three times. Jesus tells Judas, go ahead and do what you're supposed to do. All of you will fall away. Friends, the encouragement in that for you, the fact that there's no one left to roll away the stone. It's early in the morning. There's no danger of being caught. The fact that no one is left to roll away the stone is evidence for the fact that all of them have disappeared. That lets us know that only weak people follow Jesus. Only mess-ups follow Jesus. Only failures follow Jesus. The healthy have no need of a doctor. John 20, 24 says this. Now Thomas, you remember Thomas maybe? Thomas is one more disciple who takes a beating in the Gospels. One of the 12 was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples, now there's a let, sorry, there's 10 of them telling one, we've seen him. This is in another Gospel. We've seen the Lord, but he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hands into his side, I will not believe a week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. And through the doors were locked. Though, though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, You morons. I came for you. I lived a perfect life for you. I was gentle and gracious and loving and powerful. I gave sight to the blind. I let the lame walk. I lived so perfectly that in fact that it was going to engage the Jewish leaders and that they would arrest me unfairly and that they would torture me and then they would kill me. And all of my best friends, all of them wandered into the dark and now here I am and I have destroyed death. I have taken the gloves off and beaten Satan. I have dealt with your sin fully and finally, and here you are all locked in an upper room, and this one doesn't even believe it's true. No, that's not what Jesus says. That's what I would have said. Jesus says, peace be with you. Peace. Peace. Wholeness. God's blessing be with you. And then to Thomas, the one who doesn't believe, he says, here, 
I know it's hard to believe. Come. Touch the holes in my hand. Put your hand, put your hand in my side. And Thomas says to him, my Lord and my God. And then Jesus told him, listen to this, this matters. Because you have seen me, you have believed. This next part's about you. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. It took Thomas putting his hand inside the risen Christ to believe how much, and Jesus is gracious, how much more grace and patience and peace does he have for you who have not seen and yet have believed. You're the blessed ones he's talking about. When you doubt, it doesn't make you a freak. It doesn't make you a monster. It doesn't make you inept. It shows you are human and normal. And they all doubted too. And Jesus is used to loving those that doubt. Let's look at the women briefly. They're there. I mean, they're the ones who've been faithful this last few chapters. He said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. They come, as noble as it is, to treat a dead body. Now, they're doing better than the men. Two women at the cross, two at the tomb, two at the resurrection. So the witnesses are women. Now, just a brief side note for those of you who have a cognitive difficulty believing in the story of the resurrection. Women at that time, shamefully, could not even testify in court. It, it had no bearing. So if you were going to make up a story to tell to the world about a risen Savior, you would never choose women as the witnesses unless that's the way it went down. It would have been counter to what you were trying to do. But God chooses it for it to be women anyway. If you're a lady, be encouraged. The disciples are always slower than the women to believe. Jesus is always breaking the cultural norms to engage, honor, and dignify women. All of us have doubt. All of us wrestle with it. Martin Luther said it's, I can believe the gospel for anyone else in the world except for me. Pascal said it this way, there's a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of each person which cannot be satisfied by any created thing but only by God the creator made known through Jesus Christ. All of us have that itch that we can't scratch. Augustine of Hippo said our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. Everybody's looking for something. Everybody has doubts. This is powerfully demonstrated. Do you remember the Ted Williams story from a couple of years ago? Ted Williams' children wanted to give him the possibility of the life after or the afterlife, not knowing what it could actually do, pursuing the science of cryonics. And they were mocked for this, and it brought huge controversy, trying to leave room for a life after. Claudia said this, it's no different from holding the belief that you might be reunited with your loved ones in heaven. Ted Williams, my father, 
Our Father knew we needed something to hold on to for hope and comfort, and when we realized we missed him the most, and if cryonics was the answer, then the solution was simple. Her and her brother sent him to a cryonics lab in Arizona, spent over $100,000. She said this, No one would spend over $100,000 and subject themselves to public outrage and ridicule for someone that they don't dearly love. There was no ill intent or devious plan. Cryonics was like a religion, something we could still have faith in. They had the resources to try and believe that there is some life after death. Trying to believe. The disciples here and and the women are, are heartbroken because they think there must be no life after death. And you and I, we go searching all the time to find life because we're concerned that we don't know what's past this. What's really coming for us? Is it good or is it bad? Is it scary or is it safe? And we all look to some sort of faith. Maybe we'll disappear into nothingness and it won't matter what we feel. We, we will lose our individuality. Maybe good people who try hard enough will be rewarded and bad people will be punished. Who knows? But we all make up this thing that we're not sure what happens. We're not sure we can believe in the resurrection. And so we start to make our lives exclusively about now. We care less than any other generation in the history of the world what happens after death. Who cares if you have fun now? And instead of having a posture of anger towards that, God says, has Jude, and say in Jude 22, have mercy on those who doubt. Jesus knows that it's hard for you to believe, and his posture towards you is one of mercy. Does any other worldview give you that? That God not only makes a way for your salvation, but then roots for you to believe in it, and then has mercy for you as you struggle to believe? Not only does he understand our doubt, he understands our shame. In other words, you may believe that it is true for some, but not for you. You've made too many mistakes. You've been addicted too long. You've been too explosive with anger. You've been done the wrong things that you'd never admit out loud, and you feel so much shame. You wrestle with shame. Think about these women. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb, and they said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. They were the ones who were closest to Jesus. The closest to Jesus fail Jesus. Those closest to Jesus fail Jesus. After God gave Adam to Eve, Adam tattled on his wife. After God gave the rainbow to Noah, Noah got drunk. After God gave Abraham the promise of land and children, Abraham gave up his wife to another man twice. After God saved Moses from the Egyptians, Moses claimed God's power and glory for himself. After God made David king of all Israel, David committed adultery and then murder. After God let Solomon build the temple, Solomon accumulated 700 wives. After God told Jonah to go to Nineveh, Jonah ran from God because he knew of his mercy. 
After Jesus said the last shall be first, his disciples argued over who would be at the left and the right hand of Jesus, and so on and so forth. The church is not a gathering of good people. Very much like the mafia, it is a gathering of people who know that they're bad. Christians are a who's who's list of those that never seem to get it right and keep messing up. Friends, the gospel is not the end of your brokenness. The gospel is the end of your need to hide from your brokenness. Do not be surprised when you fall. That's the hardest thing to do. Every time someone confesses a sin to me, when I confess my sin to others, the the thing to say is, it's always to say is, I don't know how I got here, which sounds great. It really does, and it shows some modesty, humility about the whole situation. But what you're really saying is, I never thought someone like me could do something like this. Don't be surprised when you fall. If we say that we're sick and that we need a doctor, we shouldn't be surprised when we fall or when we hear about other people falling. And he'll apply grace right where it hurts. Where does it hurt in your life? Where have you failed? Expect grace to be applied right there. All of these people have deserted him and fled. They've made promises. I won't, even if all others deny you, I won't. And they all said the same. They made promises to Jesus and failed him. Have you made promises to Jesus and failed him too? He's used to your doubt and he's used to your shame. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus directed them and they saw him and they worshiped, but some doubted. They even see him and worship him and some doubt. He's created and sustained and was incarnated and lived 33 years life perfectly and professional executioners name him dead and he appears before them personally and some doubted him. Jesus understands your sin. Jesus understands your doubt. Jesus understands your shame. Paul will later say this, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. And when the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O oh, death, where is your victory? O oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is in sin and the power of sin is in the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus knows that you can't change all the way yet. It's not time for you to change all the way yet. Yes, you're supposed to be living a life of faith and repentance, but if you were to say, now I'm going to arrive, you're setting yourself up for this expectation which will dash you on the rocks of life. When you see your sin, when you experience your suffering, when you feel the solitude that life throws at you, you will say, I haven't changed all the way yet. And he's looking at you and saying, I know 
It's not time yet. He knows you in your doubt. He knows you in your shame, and he pursues us anyway. This is our last point. Jesus doesn't leave us in our doubt and shame. Thomas doubts Jesus. And Jesus pursues Thomas and says, go ahead. Peter denies Jesus three times. And Jesus makes Peter breakfast and restores him to ministry. The 11 say, even if everyone else falls away, I won't fall away. And Jesus sends them out to tell everybody else. Why? Because they know what it's like to fail. They know what it's like to sin. They know what it's like to doubt. Who better qualified to go and tell the limping, doubting sheep that it's okay that you're not okay? It's okay that you have moments of doubt and frustration. It's okay that it's hard for you to believe. It was hard for us to believe too, and we were there for it. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. When we began planting this church, my parents paid for us to have a housekeeper to come once a month. They knew that with the five children in the church plan, it would just all be a lot, and that would take a little bit of something off of us. And so once a month, we would have a house cleaner come and clean our house amazingly well. But I learned that two days before the house cleaner came, Aaron got us all together and had us clean up the house. I've never heard of such a thing. I thought the very point of us having a housekeeper was so that we could live our wild, reckless, dirty lives and this person would come up behind and make it all better. Oh no, Jared, you're wrong. If you do that, the housekeeper only has time to tidy and cannot do the important work of washing baseboards. You're supposed to laugh at that. Sometimes we treat Jesus like the cleanup before the cleaner comes. Yes, I'll come to Jesus when I've said I'm sorry enough. Yes, I'll come to Jesus when I've put down this one addiction. Yes, I'll come to Jesus when I believe on him a little bit more, but my doubt's too much. Yes, I'll believe in Jesus after I get through this season and we try and clean ourselves up before we come to the cleaner. But he's used to people that doubt and sin and are shamed They said, don't be alarmed. You're looking for Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He's not here. See the place where they laid him. And this is my favorite verse in the whole section. Verse 7. Remember, this is Peter giving data to John Mark to write Mark. And he says in verse 7, go tell his disciples and Peter. He's going ahead of you to Galilee. And there you will see him just as he told you. Can you imagine? The women finally do after they're running away and hiding and telling no one. Finally do make it to the disciples and they turn to this room of crying, shattered 11 men with the news of all news. And they look at him and they say, we are supposed to tell you and you, Peter. He's going ahead of you to Galilee. Can you imagine that? What was Peter thinking? This is the end. I have become the worst version of myself. I swore to him, my best friend, I swore to him that I wouldn't leave him. 
I swore it. I said, even if everyone else, and now here I am, I disappeared into the dark, and they killed him. And they killed him, and he was alone for it. And I denied him three times. And the women walk into the room and say, he wants you to know, and you too, Peter. Despite your flaws, Peter, and your sin, and your doubt, and your denying, this good news is for you, Peter. Imagine Peter's response. You'd think this is something Peter'd tuck away and been like, yeah, I forgot to put that in there. Sorry about that, Lord. Peter is taken to task in Mark's gospel. The whole get behind me, Satan, the whole even if all fall away, the three denials, the looking at Jesus in the eyes. The... Why would Peter... Take himself to task so much in his own gospel. It's so that you can know that Peter knows I've done the worst of the worst and I'm still welcome. How welcome are you then? Can I really trust him? Is he really good? Is he really powerful? Is he really trustworthy? I want you to see this. I want you to really get this. Jesus has come for them after he promised in Genesis 3.15 that he would come. When human beings mess up, he, comes, he promises in Genesis 3, I'm coming closer, I'm coming closer through the law, through the judges, through the kings, through the prophets. I'm coming closer and I'm coming closer. And then finally I come in person and I live this perfect life and I'm, I'm crucified I'm dead, I'm risen to life, and no one's there cheering for him as he wins. And he goes and gathers them up. As if it wasn't enough that he came for them all the way. Once he is victorious over sin and death and the devil, no one's left to see his victory. And so he goes and gathers them up. Close with two quotes. First one's from C.S. Lewis. He says this. This is the very end of Mary Christianity. Nothing that, sorry. Keep back nothing. Nothing that you have not given away will ever be really yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ and you will find him and with him everything else thrown in. What he's saying is God is used to those who doubt. God is used to those who are shamed. God is used to those who fail him. And he goes and gets them anyway. Go all in on Christ. And if we as a church body could go all in on Christ and really believe that if he can forgive Peter, perhaps he can forgive us, that would transform the way that we lived. This is a quote from somebody who is no longer a believer, but was a believer when he wrote this. 
and it's still true. I never liked jazz because jazz music doesn't resolve. But I was outside the Baghdad Theater in Portland one night when I saw a man playing the saxophone. I stood there for a full 15 minutes, and the man playing the saxophone never opened his eyes. He said, after that, I liked jazz music. Sometimes you have to watch somebody love something before you can love it yourself. It's as if they're showing you the way. What if we as God's people, we the church, loved our God who loved us even when no one else was standing left there? And we loved him and we loved one another. We worshiped him and we served this community and we served this city to the degree that those who aren't sure what they think of him stand and watch us and say, I never liked the church before. I never liked it. But now that I've watched them love something, it's as if I've learned to love it myself. It's as if they've shown me the way. Friends, Christ has died and Christ has risen. And all of that, He pursues us still. Let's go and tell everybody. Let's pray. Father God in heaven, I pray that you will move through your spirit, bring healing and hope, bring resurrection power into this room even now. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Father God in heaven, I pray that you will move through your spirit, bring healing and hope, bring resurrection power into this room even now. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.